I think it's good for young people and older people and non-believers to understand what's really involved with following Jesus. Unfortunately, we've lived in a culture for 50 to 100 plus years now that makes following Jesus like it sound at times like an emotional vacation or like a lifelong soul massage when really that's never been the promise of the gospel of Jesus. In fact, Jesus in his own preaching invited people to come and die to their sinful ways, to live in his righteousness and to face suffering different than the rest of the world. That's actually the hope and the promise we have isn't that we won't suffer, but that we have a hope that allows us and empowers us to suffer differently. And and that's the unique, unique thing about the gospel of Jesus. It's not that you don't suffer. It's not that there isn't persecution. But the fact is when we face it, we're able to respond to it differently than we naturally would because of the promises we have in and through the person and work of Jesus. And so I'm glad, actually, that, you know, boys and girls, you're in here, young students, I'm glad you're here, because we need to hear these truths. We need to understand that following Jesus isn't just some cakewalk. We're not guaranteed to be healthy and wealthy and marry a beautiful spouse. None of those are gospel promises. And for some of us, when we have a beautiful spouse, it's a miracle, amen? Amen, glory, yes. Uh, So... Before we get started back then in 1 Peter 3, we're going to be in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22, I want to paint the picture of the introduction that Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, just for a few verses, because this paints the backdrop of the things that we will be talking about, even in the context of suffering and persecution. 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. If you brought your own Bible, you can underline that or make a little star. The living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have a hope in Jesus through his resurrection, right? To what? To an inheritance... That is imperishable. Uh, Boys and girls, I I want you to understand inheritance. Inheritance is something when someone goes away, if they pass away, if, you know, great-grandma, great-grandpa, grandma, grandpa, an inheritance is something that is passed on of value to someone in the family line. And so what he's saying here is that in Jesus, we've been passed on these great gifts and promise in who he is. It's been given to us. It's been granted to us, not because we've done anything to earn it, but because God in his kindness caused us to become followers of Jesus by his mercy, that we have a hope in and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, meaning it doesn't go away. It can't be destroyed. It's undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we have to begin um, this morning's sermon in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12 with that understanding that there is an inheritance and a gift provided protected and sustained in and through the work of Jesus that's a future hope to be fully experienced and realized later on. So you may not be experiencing all of that joy and satisfaction and life right in this moment, but it is a future hope that that has been historically ensured through the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so as Christians who hope in the life and the death and the resurrections of, uh, resurrection of Jesus, we can then hope, and that promise is then applied to us, 
and help give us a different perspective in how we face this life. Even when we face persecution, that means being treated poorly or even being put to death because we believe in Jesus. Now, we're not nearly as close to that having happened here in Texas as people are in other parts of the country or parts of the world. But the way that culture seems to be heading, Christians are becoming less and less popular. In fact, in the Roman Empire, the Christians were often blamed for things going wrong by the government and the people because Christians refused to worship the false gods of the Romans. And because they didn't worship those gods of the Romans, they would be blamed that good things weren't happening because they refused to worship false gods. They refused to participate in those things. They refused to call wicked things good things that the Roman people thought were good. And so they were blamed often for being closed-minded, bigoted, and causing harm. Sound familiar? So we have to understand this idea of persecution and suffering because of our faith isn't that far removed. There was a young woman uh, several years ago, um, she was attending a, a college, a theological college in California. She was from a Muslim country and it was forbidden for them to be released from their country to come study. And so she was actually studying computer science at this college, but this college was also well known for theology. And she became a Christian, was studying um, the biblical languages. And she went back to the country and her father had heard that she had been baptized, which is, is licensed for death in her country. Like, your parents could kill you for becoming a Christian. And so she got back to the country. Her father asked, honestly, did you become a Christian? Were you baptized? And she answered yes. And he was open-minded and didn't want to harm his daughter. But then word spread, and her uncle got word that she became a Christian. And he came over to her house and began beating her to the point of near death. And her father, fortunately was there in time to prevent that from happening. And so he immediately took her, sent her back to the college in the United States. And as she was recovering, a pastor went and met with her and he said, I don't want to bring back bad memories, but what was going through your mind when this was happening? She says, while my uncle was willing to kill me because of Jesus, I was joyfully willing to die for him because of the promises we have. And so this is more a question of what we believe about Jesus and our hope in Him, even more so than suffering or persecution. And so keep that in mind as we open the text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's stop here. So when he says, finally, all of you, he was speaking to the church and their submission to the government. He was then speaking to a a refined and renewed dynamic between husband and wife and the family. And now he comes back to the entire church, all of you, the believers. 
He brings us collectively there. The first thing we need to understand is that Jesus provides the hope and courage we need to persevere through suffering. That's the big picture through this today. Jesus provides the hope and courage we need to persevere through suffering. If you're looking to yourself and like, I don't know if I could do that, let me stop you. You're looking in the wrong place. If you're looking to yourself to be brave and strong in the midst of suffering and persecution and fear, you're looking in the mirror rather than to your Savior. Your hope for perseverance, staying the course, sticking with the faith, isn't based on you mustering it up. It's based on your hope and the fact that he's a promise keeper. He gives this understanding that, hey, here's then how we respond. Here is how we then posture ourselves with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I harp on this a lot. If you're visiting with us, it's something that I hammer may sound refreshing and new to you, not to our people. We live in a culture that is highly independent and isolated, where people are focusing on themselves and their own wills and their own ways. What's good for me is good for me. What's good for you is good for you. Um, But really, we were created to be existing in a community for the sake of reaching our community. But the problem is, is the way our culture is, it's, hey, my life is is personal and private and everything else. I'll let you in if I need something. But other than that, then, then don't mess with me. But he's saying, no, no, no. Here's how you then live together. And just to be clear, I am, I am not unaware how messy life together can be. I'm not unaware of that truth and that fact. Life together is messy. You get a whole bunch of redeemed sinners who still struggle with sin, working together, living together with different ideas, preferences, history, and hopes, it gets messy. And so the hope we have then in this unity of mind doesn't come from all thinking the exact same things about everything. This unity of mind comes focused on the hope we have in the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection, and future return of our King Jesus. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus provides the pattern and the power for persevering through this persecution. This unity of mind doesn't come from us just brainwashing each other and and aligning on certain things on our own. What this comes from is an objectively true thing. The gospel of Jesus is true whether you believe it's true or not. We're not making it more true the more we believe and less true the less we believe. The gospel of Jesus, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the future return, is not just something we make up and then make real. It's something that is real that we either believe or don't believe, that we submit to or we don't submit to. And so this unity of mind is coming around something that is true, not based because it comes from within, without, but because from God, he enables us to believe in him. And so we unify around the main thing. You may have heard me say, we need to focus on keeping the main thing the main thing. Our hope in unity and in direction is not based on universal agreement about everything. The hope that we have for this unity is founded in the authority of our King Jesus, revealed by his word, helped by the spirit that we come together. It takes effort to unify around what really matters. The crazy thing is, I don't know about you, I'm willing to be first among you guys to admit that oftentimes my preferences become convictions. You ever had that happen in marriage where you have a strong preference that feels, and then if we're Christian, we kind of Jesus juke and slap some Lord on it and then make it the Lord told me, the Lord wants us to do it this way. And then you end up hearing about churches splitting because they don't like the color of the carpet 
or because they're singing from the screen rather than hymnals, and they split, and that's a preference, right? So unity isn't just around a whole bunch of preferences or race. Unity of mind is keeping the main thing the main thing. He says, but have this heart of sympathy. It's an idea of patience and forbearance, caring for one another. Have, have any of you heard the term um, backseat driver? Armchair quarterback? Monday morning quarterback, Monday morning coach? Right? We all have a tendency to think we know how to do things better based on our perspective and our experiences. So rather than coming alongside of someone who's struggling and suffering, many of us would rather assume the posture of fixing it rather than coming alongside of. I'm guilty of it. Like I, As I was reading this passage and studying, I'm like, I, I'm a hypocrite. But I, I think if you confess it and you ask Jesus for help, you're less hypocritical and more human, and then you can become more hopeful again in, in living a life that's honoring to the Lord. And then it goes on to this brotherly, brotherly love, this Philadelphia, Philadelphia, this idea of caring for each other as family. Not as opponents, not as objects to be um, destroyed or taken over, but we, we, we care for each other in a healthy family way. The challenge is, many of us came from broken-type families that maybe were transactional or manipulative or just kind of messed up, right? Because humans, again, mess things up. And so what I tell people when I'm, when I'm helping them think through life and, and, and living a life of uh, following Christ is sometimes the best way we honor God is by doing opposite of what we grew up with. And I don't mean to oversimplify it, but it does help. Guys, if you're like, I don't want to be like my dad, and you find yourself doing stuff just like your dad, am I the only one? Let me give you something to cry about. <gasps> Came out of my own mouth. And girls, I don't really say it to my girls, but I joke about it, but I don't really say that because they cry because I'm scary anyways. But what I started thinking is, okay, maybe my father responded this way, and maybe it was right, and, and so I'll follow that. But sometimes he, he responded certain ways. He's human. And so I started thinking about, well, what's opposite? And I started going there. And then what's biblical? How do I adjust it? And how do we live with brotherly love? How do we bear with each other? And then at times, you know, it's, let me tell you something. In the Woodlands, Magnolia, Texas area, we're not good at asking for help or receiving help until it becomes desperate. We're not good at asking for help or receiving help until it becomes desperate. Okay? Can we, as a community, say, let's work on doing better at that? I tell people, instead of it becoming like a 9 out of 10 in crisis mode, can we start chatting at around 5 or 6? And like, just give each other mutual permission that that's okay? Right? Stephanie's brilliant at this. Like, I'm like, I'll go to like 9. Like, I'm really unhappy all of a sudden. And she's like, but she's like, I see a light coming on. It's a, it's a warning light right now. We're at yellow, not red. And it'd be good for us to talk about it. Right? As a community, as we mature together, instead of you're like, we're about to go bankrupt, be foreclosed on, lose our house, why don't we start talking when maybe the power bill's late? Or you need some groceries. And maybe you're just bad with money and you need to be educated. 
Or maybe your marriage, you're like missing each other and you haven't really had a good date night in two months and you're just off and you're not communicating. You've just been through some trauma and you're really struggling a little bit. Why don't you go get fine-tuned to get some coaching or counseling before the wheels are just flopping off? Part of that's the, the help and the, the brotherly love coming alongside of each other saying like, hey, let me pray with you about that. Let me seek counsel. Let me help you think through it more clearly. He says, and have a tender heart. And, and a tender heart comes from being rightly postured under the authority of God. A tender heart comes from right, being rightly postured, understanding he's God, you are not. Spending time in his word, caring about things that God cares about, not just what you care about, and asking God to refine that, and admitting when your heart is hardened. I go through seasons where I have a hard heart towards the things of God. I know I'm a pastor. I'm paid to have a tender heart. But as a human, as a follower of Jesus, there are times where just because of sin or because of life or because of unbelief or because of struggle, my heart's not tender. And he says, a humble mind. That again comes from a posture knowing that God is God and we are not. You've heard me say before, rather than asking God always, why are these things happening? We can begin faithfully asking God, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? Help me to see what you see. Why? Because God, Jesus provides the pattern and the power for persevering through persecution. And Peter goes on and, and says crazy stuff that's opposite of us, right? Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you, this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about turning the other cheek. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks about rather than cursing, you become a blessing. Bless those who persecute you and pray for those who persecute you. It's a shift of thinking that can only come from a future hope. Knowing that they can take away everything in this life and you still have everything waiting for you. They can take away it all and you still have it all. And the beautiful hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus. And I know that may be easier said than done and maybe harder to, 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 to buy into. And that's why we need hope for each other. All these yous in Scripture, most of them are actually plural. And as we say, and I said last week, in Texas we call it y'all. So when some of you are weak in faith, those of us who are stronger in faith, we hold you up. When we're weak in faith, you hold us up. We encourage each other. We persevere with each other. We're patient with each other. We're humble towards each other. We're looking out for each other's best interest to declare a gospel to the world out there. So on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Guess what the greatest blessing is? Students, children, if you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear this. The greatest blessing that we have is God himself. That God, through his son Jesus, we get God. The almighty, greater than Santa, king of kings, and lord of lords. The life giver, the rescuer, the life changer. We get God. Through it all, at the end, eternally perfect and powerful, we get God. And so Peter then quotes from Psalm 34. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Some of you in reading this and hearing this are convicted because that is not your posture. 
And so some of us then will be tempted to say, I must try harder. That's not the gospel. Let that be a gauge to where your faith currently is and to where God is calling you to more of Him. That's why confession, we talked about that with the students yesterday, confession is merely agreeing with God. Confessing to God is saying, God, I don't love that way. I don't hope that way. I don't know this promise and I don't know how to repay evil for good. I don't know how to bless those who are cursing me. And then the Lord is inviting us, well then look to Jesus. Because as he was being beaten, mutilated, and rejected by his friends, he was calling out to God, God forgive them for they know not what they do. It's the ways of Jesus, the hope in Jesus, the power of the Spirit helping us to live this way. So that we can live as we follow Jesus, ultimately becoming more like him. The second thing I want us to see this morning is the righteous are able to bless those who persecute them because they are blessed. I want to build on that for you, okay? The righteous are able to bless those who persecute them because they are blessed. Now, some of you may be here today not feeling very blessed by God, and I would ask you, do you really know God? Do you hope and trust in the life and the sacrificial death of Jesus, the power of the resurrection, and the hope that we have to come. Because if your trust is not there, this is impossible. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." We do have some choice in how we are to suffer. We can suffer within context of righteousness of God doing as He calls us to do in Christ. Or we can retaliate and seek harm, bringing about our own righteousness. He says, have no fear of them. Suffering for what is right you will be blessed. He says, have no fear of them. Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As a recovering people pleaser, part of my core sin and pride is found in the fear of man and woman. Women. Like fearing the opinions and thoughts of people. And I shared this last week, and I shared it before. I promise I read the entire book, but Ed Welch's book, when people, are big, when people Are Big and God Is Small, just to remind us, he says, you can sometimes please some people, but you can most of the time please God. And part of maturing in faith and growing in our belief and understanding of who God is and what he's accomplished is that we're less impacted deeply by the displeasure of others especially if their displeasure is based upon us doing what is right in God's sight. We're less affected by the displeasure of others 
especially when their displeasure is due to us doing what's right in God's sight. I remember years ago, I had quite a bit of debt. Apparently, those plastic cards that you can swipe and get whatever you want, want to be repaid. And apparently, when you don't have as great a credit, you have higher interest payments on that, like 20 plus percent. And so I was talking to a friend of mine, and we were coming out of that, and we were planning a church and doing all these different things. He says, hey, why don't you stop tithing for a while so you can pay off your debt? And I was like, huh? He's a Christian dude. He's like, why don't you, yeah, why don't you stop tithing so you can pay off your debt? And I said, no. He said, well, you don't have to be legalistic. I said, I'm not believing in this to be my salvation. That's legalism. I'm just believing that God is ultimately the provider. He didn't mess up. I did. And so I want to be faithful. And so Stephanie, and Stephanie sees clear about things like that. She's like, absolutely not. We're not doing that. We'll cut out this. We'll cut out this. We'll cut out this. We'll cut out this. We'll cut out this, blah, blah, blah. But no, we're going to give to God. And by God's grace, I think it was about three years later, completely out of consumer debt, while increasing our giving, because we believe God. It's His. We trust Him. We hope in Him. We would rather be reviled. I would rather go and say to the church, like, hey, I need help with groceries um, because uh, you know my debt's been heavy, everything else, and I've been giving sacrificially to the church. Now, I'm not saying don't ask for help from the church if you haven't been giving. We're not like, oh, you need groceries. Hmm. We're not, <laughs> we're not doing that to you guys. But it's just that hope in Christ that ultimately Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, is faithful. He, he cares. And I, I really respect my buddy who offered that. He was coming from a safe and good place, but just theologically and practically, I couldn't go there with him. I'd rather bet on the Lord than on myself. But this is interesting. Now, I'm not going to guilt you into evangelism because this is a verse that usually is, right? It says, um, <laughs> Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with, your, with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It says, Be prepared. Meaning that pre preparation, apparently, I didn't learn this until like later in college, preparation happens before. Not like the night before. I mean, I, I had some positive reinforcement for negative behaviors and choices of waiting to the last minute to study and still pass, etc. But make, pre be prepared. So when we say, hey, read your Bible, join a community group, learn to serve. Serving isn't a punishment for being a part of this church. I just want to tell you. Some of you are like, oh, when was the last time you were on road crew? Okay, maybe. It's not meant as a punishment. It's meant, of discipleship. It's meant as a, a means of discipleship. In the same way Christ suffered and gave his life up, we are called to learn to serve sacrificially and learn to do so with joy because of the great service of God to us. We then respond, not grumbling or bitter, but it's a part of our preparation it's a part of our discipleship of not just merely intellectual assent to good blog posts, podcasts, and articles, but rather a preparation of working out our salvation, doing some thankless deeds. Every time, and if you're a young guy, you've heard this, John Hedblom can, can affirm it, anytime I get a young buck and you're like, I want to plant a church. How old are you? 12? Right, no. Or 22, whatever you were, 21. I say, awesome, join the road crew. 
I'm not going to bring up the A-frame story, John, but it's a hilarious story. You'll have to ask him later about it. But I see, join the road crew, learn to serve, to do thankless deeds. Because the labor of love of pastoring people well isn't about the gratitude they give you, but the hope that you have in Christ. That's easier said than done. Even after being in ministry almost 20 years. It's thankless, helpless. I was talking to someone who's getting into ministry and they said, what's one tip you'd give? I say, learn to be disappointing and just do it faithfully. I'm not saying this to make you feel sorry for me, but just when you're in ministry, you're lifting someone up and you're letting someone down. Or you're excelling in one area and then someone's disappointed or upset or frustrated. Some people are pleased with your decision. Other people are upset with your decision. That's part of leading humans and part of being human who fails. I fail. But that's where you keep your eyes on the future hope we have. And so when persecution comes, when you pay for mistakes that you make, whether it's in vocational ministry or just you're ministering to someone, your neighbor, and they get frustrated with you or they get let you down or they run away from God or whatever, and you don't lose hope, you've been preparing to be able to give hope for the hope you have. I remember a while back, I was in a tough season of ministry, and someone said, why are you just sticking to that? Go make some money or do something else. And I said, because my boss, Jesus, is 100% perfect, yet every one of his followers rebelled against him, rejected him, and left him. And he was perfect. For me, I'm not perfect. And some of the pain I'm in, I brought upon myself. And so I'm following my boss in this. My hope is the fact that Jesus didn't get mad, bring down lightning bolts, and immediate death on people who let him down. Rather, he prayed for them, he hoped in them, and he hoped for better days. Am I always that faithful? No. But most of the time, by God's grace, I'm able to have that hope. And that perseverance. It says, be prepared. And I want to tell you that that didn't just come up like, wow, he's a great guy. He's really able to be disappointing well. No, it's been preparation. In seminary and in study and in learning from other pastors and understanding my own brokenness and humanity, remembering how hard I was on church planting pastors I had served with because I was a great armchair quarterback. I'm a better armchair quarterback than the quarterback. I can see way more clearly if I'm not playing. But being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I remember seeing that so clearly in many of your stories when someone has died or you lost a child or a spouse. It's not that you didn't grieve, but that you grieved cleanly. That was disorienting and disheveling to the world around you. And you could give the reason for that hope. The reason for that hope. And I know some people that were in tough situations who have hoped in God publicly, and people were like, well, they need to hope in doctors or something else because God's not going to show up. And while that's minor persecution, it still hurts and it still causes us to suffer discouragement. And so this hope is important. But notice what it says here. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Don't do it with hot, hot tempers and mad and angry uh, words. You do it with humility and gentle, gentleness and respect. 
with a clear conscience so that when people talk bad about you, it's not because you're being a jerk for Jesus, but because you're being faithful to proclaim the gospel in the midst of persecution and suffering. At the end of the day, what does your life and your actions preach? Does it preach the gospel of Jesus or the gospel of wealth or the gospel of success or the gospel of happiness? What gospel is your life preaching? And number three is this. Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, is blessed by God through his suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus suffered in our place so that ultimately, even if and when we suffer, we are at peace with God. And when he talks about the Spirit of Christ descending into hell or into the prisons, as Noah did through the water, there are many interpretations of this. The one that seems most appropriate in the context of first peter and the context of the full uh, of scripture is that in the days of noah where noah in genesis 6 was told by god to build an ark taking many many decades to do so he was reviled by people even though his message was consistent that god's people needed to repent and hope in god yet they rebelled against god and so god rescued noah through the flood he proclaimed through noah the hope of rescue we have, that by believing in faith in God, Noah and his family were rescued. They were saved out of the impending doom and judgment. They were rescued out. And so the spirit that is in Christ, the spirit of Christ through Noah in that proclamation went to declare the hope that we have that we are justified, made right with God by grace through faith. That's always been the good news through the whole of Scripture. By hoping and trusting in God, we are right with God. And so he says, through that, in the same way, baptism, which we celebrate here at Christ Community Church, corresponds to this rescue through water. But notice, it says it now, sa- now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the outside, not removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's why we encourage you, as you trust Jesus, to obey Jesus and follow in his footsteps and be baptized. Baptism itself does not save us. What it proclaims is a hope in the resurrected Jesus who does. And so we obey God by being baptized as a public proclamation of the good news that God is faithful in keeping his promises to carry us through the water and bring us to life. And we're pretty light on pushing baptism because we, you know, part of it is, I don't want to offend, but part of it is that it's it's a confusing thing for people. But I want you to know, if you placed your hope in Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized, then I strongly encourage you to do so to walk in obedience with God, to say, I align and place my hope alone in the life, death, the power of the resurrection and the return of Jesus as my only hope for being right with God and being forgiven and acceptable to God. 
Baptism is an outward and public proclamation that God has worked in us and gifted us with faith. That our hope is in the authority of the risen Jesus who's at the right hand of the Father and will come and rescue His people. Jesus provides the hope and courage we need to persevere through suffering. As we come together and we hope in faith in the person and work of Jesus, He is our focus. He is our prize. Eternity with Him is far more valuable and satisfying than temporal peace and comfort today. We've been given the eternal hope of life with Him through Jesus. And Jesus does provide the hope and the courage we need to persevere through suffering. Let's pray together.